At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. Um, welcome back to Cyber Law and Business Report, and uh, you may be seated. Um, this is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. I'm glad to have you back. We have a great show for you today. We have um, going to cover two different topics. The first, we're going to have um, Santa Clara Law Professor Eric Goldman, and he's going to discuss the end of dazed and confused in search marketing, maybe. And then we're going to have... Um, in the second half hour, we're going to have James Gannon, who's from one of Canada's top law firms, and he's going to discuss Canada's new Fighting Internet and Wireless Spam Act, or the Canadian version of Can Spam. So um, it's going to be a fun show. Um, if you're in, participating in the chat room, let us know any questions you might have. We'd love to get get your questions in. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring on Eric Goldman, who is a professor of law at Santa Clara University and the director of their High Tech Law Institute. Um, I've worked with Eric on the, the California Bar Cyberspace Committee, and um, but Eric also is well known for his tech and marketing blog, which is one of the ABA blog 100s. And um, since we've also talked a lot about the Amazon techs, Eric is quick to point out that he is an Amazon affiliate. <laughs> so Eric, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, um, Eric, you, one thing you've devoted a lot of a time to is actually the issue of liability for keyword search. And um, just recently we had a decision from the Ninth Circuit, which you've actually blogged quite extensively about. And do you, do you think that really clarifies the, the state of law with keyword search? Uh well, yes and no. Um, we got some very useful answers from the Ninth Circuit, but um, we have a lot of unanswered questions uh, that uh, we'll continue to take time to sort out. If we could just clarify the overall scope of the issue. Um, we've seen a variety of different battles have taken place between trademark owners and other members of the uh, keyword advertising community. Trademark owners have sued search engines uh, for selling their trademarks as keywords, and trademark owners have sued uh, keyword advertisers for purchasing uh, their trademarks as keywords. We've also seen battles taking place in other venues, such as um, 
uh, in uh, the private adjudication processes that the search engines offer trademark owners. So the Ninth Circuit ruling gives us some very helpful and important information about the trademark owner versus keyword advertiser lawsuits. Um, it doesn't give us as much useful information about the trademark owner versus search engine lawsuits. So um, there's, uh, if nothing else, uh, it's going to continue to be some legal development required there. Well, when we back into this a little bit, first of all, the, 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 the volume of litigation over um, using trademarks in search is, is surely a sign of how important search marketing has come. I think uh, 50%, 50 cents of every um, dollar spent on internet advertising is done at search. And um, but what uh, I'm sorry, Ben, I, I want to clarify two things uh, just sure. in response to that. Uh, number one, um, no doubt uh, search uh, advertising is an integral part of online advertising. And of course, online advertising is one of the fastest growing segments of the advertising community generally. So um, search advertising is critical. What we don't know is what percentage of that search advertising is based on third-party trademarks. How many of True. the keywords that are being bought in this uh, umbrella of search advertising um, is, uh, um, uh, is based on um, an advertiser trying to purchase its competitor or some other third-party trademark? That could be actually a fairly small percentage of the overall search advertising dollars. We just don't know. I would also point out that uh, although we have a fair amount of litigation taking place, um, if you think about the overall amount of dollars that are being spent in this industry, it's actually not that much litigation. So many of these disputes are resolved uh, outside of the courtroom. So we have some activity going on, but I'm not sure that um, uh, I would say that uh, we've seen the kind of floodgates we've seen in perhaps other areas um, just based on the amount of activity taking place in search advertising generally. Sure. Now let's um, kind of lay some groundwork. Um, one of the, the seminal cases in this area came from the Ninth Circuit, and that was a decision called Brookfield Communications, in which the court uh, and that addressed the issue of actually it was even um, um, was search. It was um, meta tags, I believe, and um, used an analogy that if you use someone else's trademark, and it's likely it's like creating a detour on a freeway, and once they get off. They're not likely to get back on. And so that hence became the birth of what is known as the initial interest confusion doctrine, um, which I think believe you in a brief um, years later would say is a complete mess. I am and, not um, a fan of the initial yeah. interest confusion doctrine. If we could just go back to the Brookfield case for a moment. Um, sure. It was in 1999, and it involved both uh, a domain name uh, as well as uh, keyword meta tags. Um, and I think that both technologies baffled the court a little bit. They weren't really well equipped to handle um, the different ways that people might be uh, searching for information online. And they made a long list of technological assumptions about how uh, users would interact with domain names and keyword meta tags that have not fared well over time. The, the technological underpinnings of that case have changed quite a bit. Um, but in any case, uh, the, the court there, in trying to provide a helpful offline analogy, which in my opinion is an oxymoron, um, <laughs> uh, said uh, that 
um, keyword meta tags, which were designed to get the search uh, engine to index a particular website for whatever keywords were put in there, um, was the equivalent of putting up a billboard that had false information on it saying that uh, a particular desired brand was located at the next uh, exit. Um, with the idea that then people driving down the freeway would see that billboard, they would get uh, off the uh, off-ramp um, and then start looking for this desired brand. And if it just so happened that the uh, a competitive brand was nearby, some of those drivers would get frustrated. They couldn't find the brand they desired. They would see an alternative. They would settle for that alternative, and therefore the trademark owner had lost some money. And the um, the analogies between the two um, situations, keyword uh, meta tags and the search engine context and uh, this billboard with false uh, information in its uh, ad copy um, breaks down. And I actually wrote a lengthy article um, breaking down. It's an article called Deregulating Relevancy. And uh, I, I think you have a place on your site where you can provide some links, and we can provide a link to that. Sure. So Please, people thank really you. want to see all the reasons why that analogy was uh, misarchitected from the get-go can do some deeper dive. Well, I think there was one court, uh, I forget the, the court, it was the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, that um, said that they, they clearly they didn't understand the internet because you know, going to another site by accident isn't really a detour since all you have to do is hit the backspace. So it's, it's really more just a lane change. And I kind of thought that was a good, good critique of Brookfield. And what struck – the problem with Brookfield I always thought was that you could have um, – Damages or at least liability without really injury. Um, the, the the fact that you went to someone else's website thinking it was um, of the trademark holders was injury in itself. And, um, and I was surprised even McCarthy on trademarks, you know, one of the preeminent scholars in the area, thought the same thing. And um, and so it seems that the Ninth Circuit decision um, we we're about to talk about was was walking away from that. And really going back to traditional standards of trademark jurisprudence. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, you said a lot of things there, Ben. I'm not sure if I uh, can keep them all straight. Um, but uh, let me let me point out just a couple of things. Um, first of all, the billboard analogy that was used in Brookfield involved a false ad copy. And uh, in many online circumstances, in fact, we have um, previewing information that's truthful information that helps people decide whether or not to click on a link. So, for example, in the search engine context, the ad copy um, uh, that's presented in response to a keyword search should be truthful. If it's not truthful, there are plenty of remedies for false ad copy. Correct. In the organic search, um, there's usually some preview of the website. This is the site description, for example. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes the search engine manufactures that site description on their own. Sometimes they index the description meta tag and use the site's own characterization of itself. Either way, there's some previewing information. Again, if, that, if, the, if a site uses a description meta tag that contains false information, then, again, we have a false uh, uh, advertising problem. Um, but if they're telling truthful information, people get a preview of what they might get when they click on a link, then the billboard analogy that was given in the Brookfield case just doesn't apply. There, the previewing information, the ad copy, was false. If we have truthful uh, information, the, the analogy doesn't work. Um, 
even if people get false previewing information, as you pointed out, once they get to the site, they're going to make another assessment whether uh, the uh, site is what they were looking for. And if they conclude it isn't, the harm here, and I'm going to put that in quotes, is they hit the back button and they go looking for uh, uh, the next uh, stop. And in the 1990s, the idea of people hitting the back button seemed to be its own harm. That was too much work for them to, to do. Now we know that uh, we even have a term for it. It's called pogo sticking. And search engines try to reduce the amount of pogo sticking that their searchers do by giving them better assessments of what they might get when they click on a link. But everyone goes through those kinds of uh, false starts, uh, clicking on something, investigating it, deciding that wasn't right, backing out, trying again. Um, and calling that a harm is so massively over-inclusive um, that it would uh, it just is not justifiable. I will add that uh, Professor McCarthy has changed his tune on this topic, and he thinks that the courts have overreacted as well. Yeah, I would, that's good to hear because I was really surprised that it, to see some of his, his earlier remarks just basically calling it tantamount to theft. And um, so – but let's jump to the decision that came down from the Ninth Circuit. Um, why don't you give us the lead into um, the background on the case and – uh, so this case is what I would call a very straightforward, comparative, competitive advertising situation. You've got two companies targeting the same customer base, offering very similar tools, and competitor A buys the trademarks of competitor B to put up an ad saying, if you're looking for competitor B's offerings, you might consider our offerings as well. They didn't actually say that in the ad copy. The ad copy was more opaque for reasons we can explore if you want. Um, but the general notion here is that uh, competitor A was trying to tell co competitor B's uh, prospective customers, we're another option. We'd like you to consider us as well. And uh, at the lower court, at the district court level, um, uh, the, uh, the, the keyword advertiser, in this case what I described as competitor A, uh, got slammed, um, applying uh, all the crusty uh, precedent that had developed over the last uh, uh, 12 or so years. Um, the court says, you can't do that, and uh, uh, slammed down the keyword advertiser hard. And on appeal, uh, the court reversed that, um, dissolved the pre preliminary injunction, and effectively called the, told the district court to try again. And then along the way, it gave a bunch of principles to the district court to better evaluate uh, when something like comparative, competitive keyword advertising might, in fact, be a problem. And it seems that uh, the court showed great deference to Brookfield, but then went out of its way to more or less create a clear standard that suggests Brookfield's no longer controlling. You know, um, it's the nature of a uh, common law system where uh, everything's built on precedent. Um, the three-judge panel hearing this particular case did not have the power to simply say, we screwed up in Brookfield and we no longer stand by that <laughs> as a good rule of law. Um, that's effectively what the panel said, but they couldn't come out right and say it. There's not a Latin word for dope. <laughs> <laughs> there should be, uh, because uh, the Ninth Circuit really laid an egg in the Brookfield case. And um, uh, what what happened is that case was so poor that the Ninth Circuit has ever since then been trying to twist and turn its precedent around the fact that it got it wrong in the first instance. Um, and so over the years, we've got this accumulated cruft, as I referred to in my blog post, um, you know, this accumulated aggregation of precedent that's tortured because nobody's willing to come out 
outright and say Brookfield is a bad decision. We need to do it. We need to do a do-over. Um, this opinion is the closest to actually saying that. But over time, if you add up all the precedents, you can tell most of the judges uh, that have touched this issue since the Brookfield case have realized that that was a bad decision. But what's interesting, Eric, though, is hasn't the the, the concept of initial interest um, confusion, whether or not it's the same as articulated in Brookfield, it's been adopted by several other circuits. You know, uh, it does show up, but I'll tell you, I have a, an alert system set up when uh, opinions reference the initial interest confusion doctrine, and I don't get that many alerts anymore. I definitely get some, um, but it's one of these um, uh, doctrines that's floating out there that's available for judges to use when they think that there's some reason to use it, but frankly, um, it has not swallowed up the rest of uh, trademark law the way that I think we feared in the 1990s. Um, uh, it just doesn't get cited uh, that often, and it is controlling in even a smaller number of cases. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about over the last few years, uh, maybe a half dozen cases where the initial, initial interest confusion doctrine was a decisive uh, a principle in helping the court reach its conclusion. Um, at most, maybe it's not even a half a dozen. Um, so, uh, in that sense, I think that it's a it's a doctrine that's well known, but it's actually not that useful to the courts. And I think that the courts have signaled that. Um, I'll go further and add that um, basically, when it's used, it's when the court is making a moral condemnation of the defendant, and it says, "You know what? I don't like what you're doing." I'm not sure how to figure out um, how to say I don't like what you're doing, so I'm going to invoke this doctrine called initial interest confusion. Defendant, you lose. Um, that's pretty much the, the the most rigorous way of that the the doctrines ever used is, is just basically a vote in, against the defendant. So um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit further about the what this decision means and give you a little guidance or helpful hints as to uh, what's the best way to approach using uh, your competitor's trademark in the online search market. So we'll be right back. Roscoe? Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. It's time again to make your plans to be at SES New York 2011. SES New York 2011 makes its way to the New York Hilton March 21st to the 25th. SES New York 2011 will feature over 70 sessions, over 100 exhibitors, and networking opportunities with thousands of marketing and search engine optimization professionals. SES New York 2011 will start with a high-profile opening keynote from Yahoo's principal research scientist, Duncan Watts. Thursday, March 25th is the Online Marketing Summit's All Things Digital Best Practice Day, which features a full day of premium breakout sessions. Don't delay. Come to SES New York 2011. 
March 21st to the 25th inside the New York Hilton. Register right now at searchenginestrategies.com and get 20% off your registration when you use promo code WMR20. Register right now at searchenginestrategies.com and use promo code WMR20. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Welcome to the home of the latest search marketing news and views of the world. Welcome to the state of search. Boss Bondenbeld and Roy Hoiske scope the entire search marketing space from Berlin to Bucharest, London to Lisbon, the Silicon Valley, and beyond. Search marketers from around the world discuss the latest headlines and issues in search engine marketing, social media, and more. State of Search, Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the International Marketing Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back um, with Eric um, Eric Goldman from Santa Clara University, who is also um, one of the, uh, the proud, the few, the elite um, ABA Blog 100. Um, Eric, uh, you must have been thrilled to be included among the ABA 100. Uh, you know, uh, it's actually, um, there are a lot of lawyers who are very cynical about, um, the ability of law professors to contribute anything useful to the discourse. So to have the American <laughs> Bar Association, a group of practitioners think that my blog was useful was, was actually quite gratifying. There are, there are cynical lawyers. I always thought that, you know, there were no such thing as cynical or sarcastic lawyers. Well, they're cynical about uh, life in general, uh, but they're especially cynical about uh, law professors. So, what, Eric, what's, if someone wanted to check out your blog, where, where can they find it? Uh, sure. It's at blog.ericgoldman.org. Great. And, um, by the way, if you, um, if you go to ilccyberreport.wordpress.com, there's, there's a link to Eric's blog as well. Um, I'm a big fan of it, actually, Eric, and you do a great job. And Eric also does a great job on this issue in particular. This is an issue he covers extensively um, from you know, both from the issue of the initial interest confusion doctrine, but also you're kind of one of the leading persons in terms of um, covering the uh, various suits brought against the search engines. Um, for using competitors' trademarks, I, I, I would venture to say. I've got a blog post that will be coming out uh, later this week of yet another lawsuit uh, against uh, Google. Uh, so they keep coming, and I keep blogging. Well, just as, as frequently as Lindsay Lohan in trouble, Eric's 
on on the spot when it comes to search marketing. But um, uh, I'm not sure, Ben, about analogizing me and Lindsay here. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll say thanks. <laughs> I mean, this could be how many times in your career you're going to have that in the same sentence. But in any event, um, <laughs> this would be a good time to kind of talk about the, what the Ninth Circuit ruling means in practical terms, and um, kind of take it in baby steps. And I think when we, we talk about Search you know, using your competitor's trademark just as a keyword term. You know, I I think the law is clear that that in itself is okay. And so uh, I, I'm you, sorry, uh, I'm I'm going to go chime in there, Ben. I, I you stated something more aggressively than I might say it. Um, we're still seeing battles over when you can use a competitor's trademark as a keyword trigger, regardless of your ad copy. Um, effectively, that was one of the issues in this case. Um, and the court didn't say defense wins. It said, we got a uh, district court, you got to try over again. So I consider that to continue to see that as an open issue that we're still working through. I like the uh, conclusion that you reach. I think that's the right conclusion. I'm not sure that the judges have cut up with that. Okay, there are some there's some you know, courts in the East Coast that have, that have gone that way at least, and um, so then where do you get in trouble with, and where should you get in trouble in terms of you know, where the courts are, and I think that the first place you get in trouble is you know, then if you if you do an ad that doesn't even have the competitor's um, trademark, you you should be okay uh, with one exception. And I think there's some there's some case law that if your ad is so so similar to the, the um, that of your competitors that um, there's a possibility the the court and since you haven't distinguished yourself as being sufficiently distinct from the, your competitor that the, that the consumer may confuse you for them. Um, have you seen those cases, Eric? I have. Again, I, I think that it's hard to generalize here, so I'm going to take a different tact in a moment about how to generalize these cases. Um, uh, but, um, you know, uh, what uh, the latest Ninth Circuit case says, which is 100% correct, is that you have to look at the totality of the circumstances of the advertising. You have to look at the keyword that was purchased. You have to look at the ad copy uh, that was shown in display to that. Um, and then you may, in certain circumstances, even have to consider where that ad copy led to and what information might have uh, uh, shaped consumer per- perspectives there. So, um, you know, uh, that is the right approach. However, um, I'm seeing cases that don't do that. Um, that, again, like the district court in this case said, I see competitive keyword advertising defense loses. Um, so the situation, I think, is murkier um, for keyword advertisers. The question I put on the table for your listeners is, um, is competitive trademark bidding a useful tool for you, and, uh, considering everything that's involved with it? Does it make net profits in such a way that it's worth doing, uh, especially if you consider the risk that your competitor is going to potentially disrupt your advertising campaign? But also, we've seen uh, competitors engage in um, uh, the, the reciprocal behavior. So, if you go and buy your competitor's trademark, that starts off a war where then your competitors start buying your trademarks. And what we have is a classic prisoner's dilemma. Both parties end up worse off. They end up bidding against each other, paying a tax to the search engines, and not really actually getting a whole lot of incremental new customers. So, I encourage your listeners to think about whether that's the right strategy for them. Now, it, it seems you can make an argument that it, it's, it's a logical thing to do if you're the little guy trying to, for lack of a better term, free ride on the big guy. You know, if you're um, 
trying to take advantage of someone's prominence in the space and trying to use your ad dollars want, you know, cautiously. And um, you want to go where you think the most people will be. And if, don't you think that would make sense? You know, if I'm if I'm just starting out and um, and I'm creating my own version of Chia Pet, well, wouldn't I want to you know bid on the the, the actual Chia Pet itself? Right. Uh, and so we've seen um, a bunch of different dynamics. When we have a very stable industry with a well-defined competitor set, and one of them starts buying the other's trademarks. Um, we definitely see the prisoner's dilemma that I described. Um, all, you know, nobody ends up better off. When you have a new entrant to that market who is trying to gain traction by saying, we are an alternative to the incumbents, um, that's a situation that we might find um, that's a good deal or, or a better deal for uh, the keyword advertiser there. Um, on the other hand, recognize that um, there's a bunch of ways that uh, uh, retaliation is possible, and so you have to be thoughtful. Is this still a good deal for us? These are exactly the kind of lawsuits that we see where trademark owners say, I see the, the, the startup trying to disrupt my incumbency, and I'm just going to throw a lot of money to try and uh, uh, kick them out of the uh, industry. Um, so I think that balance has to be uh, thought through. Now, what we're talking about here in the Ninth Circuit decision obviously relates to um, marketing efforts within the United States. Now, Europe tends, has taken somewhat of a different approach. When it comes to the keyword search, in fact, you know some some European countries, I think, for example, in Germany, are openly hostile towards kind of comparative advertising. And um, I don't know if you have you been following what the latest is in terms of um, using competitors' um, search terms, I mean, trademarks in, in keyword search in Europe. A little bit, but Europe is such a complicated uh, regulatory environment, it's fairly hard to cut through all the different legal doctrines that overlap there. There's the EU-level regulations, and there's each uh, nation's uh, regulations. Um, they may not be the same, or they might be discordant. Um, so uh, figuring out what you can do and in which country is actually uh, quite complicated. Um, there are countries in Europe that disfavor or outright ban comparative advertising. So uh, something that we accept as just a given here in the United States is actually impermissible outright in some portions of the uh, of Europe. And we've had some cases that have been trying to interpret when competitive keyword advertising uh, is legitimate. And the the, the latest EU regula- uh, um, ruling on this basically says if people are going to be confused about the source of the um, uh, stuff, which the court deliberately was ambiguous whether the stuff was the ad copy or the underlying goods that are being sold, um, then uh, the keyword advertising can be problematic. And uh, that hairball ruling that was tossed to all the various nations' top courts and said, you guys figure out what this means for your country. So it's become, I think, an, an environment where, again, there's so many different regulations that might not be in agreement with each other um, that uh, it's someone who really wants to do the right thing is going to have to get some very knowledgeable feet on the ground there. Um. It is a kind of a complicated area, and especially when you have you know, different circuits taking a different approach. And do you think there will be clarity over the next year or two in light of the Ninth Circuit decision, or do you think you know judges are judges and they're going to get it wrong and they're going to get it right? Uh, so I uh, have predicted, and uh, I continue to think that um, 
uh, this prediction is holding, that we're at the end of the keyword advertising uh, trademark battles, um, that those are slowly winding down, and we're beginning to get to the point where we understand what we can and can't do, um, and that mostly trademark owners are just going to have to get over it, um, that they're going to have to use the private uh, adjudication processes uh, offered by the search engines, and if they can't get relief there, chances are that it's not going to be worth um, chasing down uh, competitive keyword advertisers in court. Um, and so I think that we will get more clarity in the next year or two. I think that we're, we're at the beginning of the end of this process. That doesn't mean complete good news. Trademark owners are still going to be litigious, and they're going to find other venues in which they're going to contest um, uh, efforts to dislodge their uh, marketplace position. But I think that um, uh, I think we're uh, beginning to see that keyword advertising is, for the most part, a good thing, and trademark owners just have to get over it. Um. You, it's good to, from a lawyer's point of view, obviously, to hear that um, you think litigation will be continuing, and uh, obviously that, that that makes us all happy. But um, yeah, I, I think you, you're going to see. I, I agree with you. I think this, this era, this market is maturing, and I think um, this area is becoming more and more settled. And um, you know, I think over time, you know, we'll see less and less of this these type of cases. And in which case, Eric, what what are you going to specialize in then? I'm going to specialize in uh, creating jokes to make you laugh. Uh, so um, can I just go back, though? Let me give you an example of why I think these cases are going to come to an end. We, I want to mention another case that kind of flew under the radar. I, I ended up not being able to blog it when the case came out, and so I'm partially a con- uh, contributing factor to not giving the case the attention deserved. This is the 1-800-CONTACTS-VERSUS-LENS.COM case. Um, and uh, this came out in December, uh, and it's a classic uh, competitive keyword advertising case. Lens.com was trying to let uh, people who uh, were interested in purchasing contact lenses know that Lens.com was an option they should consider. And uh, uh, one of the things that stood out about the case um, is that 1-800-CONTACTS was willing to spend $1.1 million to try to stop Lens.com from advertising on uh, its trademark. Um, and uh, when we finally saw the numbers from the case of how much money uh, was actually at, at risk or at issue um, in uh, the case, the best that I was able to come up with, with all assumptions in favor of 1-800-CONTACTS, is that Lens.com had made maybe forty grand of profit off of uh, the um, people who had uh, clicked in response to Lens.com's advertisements on uh, the um, uh, the 1-800-CONTACTS trademarks. Um, so, just kind of stepping back for a moment, you say um, there's 40 grand of money uh, of money at issue here. How much is it worth a trademark owner to go get that? And Bennett, even you, in uh, your highly efficient uh, and skillful uh, litigation work, um, I don't think you're going to take on a trademark case and be able to bring it in for under uh, 40 grand. No, and you know, one eight hundred. You also forget the other arena where they've been very active, and that's at in the state legislature in trying to get um, you know competitive uses of, of trademarks and prohibited. You know, we, the Eric's also famous for publishing a list of stupid state laws um, at the end of the year, and uh, Utah seems to have made your list several years in a row because of its attempt to placate its its resident one eight hundred. 
the Utah legislature is a very bizarre animal, and uh, local companies like One Hundred Contacts have an, an amazing amount of influence in a body like that. Among other things that blew me away, One Hundred Contacts asked the legislator to sponsor legislation that would help it squash keyword advertising, and its in-house government affairs person was also a member of the Utah legislature and voted in favor of the law that her employer had put on the table. Um, if that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is, but everyone seemed to accept it in Utah. You know, and, and it's it's troublesome because you know you really see what what the benefit of a home um, a home court advantage is in a place like Utah, because you it's not like Congress where there's a lot of press coverage and you can see what's happening, um, you know, several miles away. Where, although not always, in a small state like that, it's hard to get the intelligence to know when a bill like that is going to move, and they they often move quite quickly, and um, so that's why I think we've seen some of the disasters that have come out of Utah, unfortunately. Uh, can't argue with you there. It's actually very difficult for someone like me to track what's going on in the Utah legislature and have any ability to marshal up resources to combat stupid ideas that they're cooking. Um, I do want to go back to the 1-800-CONTEXT-VERSUS-LENS.COM case, though. When you talk about home court advantage, um, that case was litigated in Utah. So it was uh, so from a litigation standpoint, 1-800-CONTEXT had all the litigation benefit being in its home court, and yet they still lost that case decisively. Can I keep talking about that case, Bennett? Uh, I know, yeah, please. Uh, that we're also gearing up for another person, but um, I have a few more words to say about that. Yes, please. Go ahead. Um, one other thing that was really interesting about the Lens.com case is that uh, the principal theory that 1-800-CONTACTS uh, asserted is that Lens.com was liable for its affiliates' keyword advertising purchases. So... Uh, um, uh, Lens.com had uh, gotten a, a whole packet of affiliates through Commission Junction. Um, those affiliates were going out trying to generate new customers for Lens.com, and some of those affiliates were bidding on uh, 1-800-CONTACTS trademarks. So Lens.com didn't do it itself. Its affiliates were the ones engaged in that keyword advertising. And uh, this is a very common argument that trademark owners make. They say, um, I see that a Lens.com ad shows up on uh, search for my trademark. I don't care if it's Lens.com who placed it or somebody else in your uh, chain of distribution. Uh, we want to hold Lens.com responsible for that activity. And the court completely shredded that argument. Um, it's really one of the first thoughtful arguments, uh, uh, analyses we've seen of this argument that trademark owners make that um, – uh, an uh, online retailer is liable for the um, uh, keyword bidding by its affiliates. Um, Court just said no. You know, it's um, it's interesting because the fact that the courts have stood up and basically saved save the uh, um, save the legislature from themselves, and um, but you know, they haven't always done that. Actually, I, I always I thought the court made the wrong decision. With Utah's um, child registry law, you know, I clearly thought that that was something that should have been preempted. It was kind of a a backdoor, and um, so I'm sorry. Um, I just want to be clear because Utah's passed so many dumb legislation. Uh, I want to make sure to we're track. one. You're talking about the one that says "Don't spam the kids registry," right? Where um, it, it clearly is a just by labeling that as a, com- a computer crime. 
um, to, to kind of wedge it into the exception to canned spam, then, um, you know, it, it seemed like it's something that should have been preempted. But Eric, uh, I really want to thank you for your time, and uh, it's always been a pleasure. We hope to have you back. And please, if you have listeners, you definitely want to check out Eric's blog. And um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Canada's new spam law. Eric, thanks again. Pleasure talking to you. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Our clients have earned over $1 billion. Now it's your turn. With over 20,000 products to promote across a huge variety of niches, ClickBank provides countless ways for any affiliate to make money. You can promote any product immediately. No contract required. Looking for recurring commissions? Upsell products? ClickBank's got them. And best of all, you can make up to 75% commissions. Ready to become the next ClickBank success story? Sign up now for free at ClickBank.com. Welcome to SEO 101. You're- Hello? Yeah, Bennett. I just wanted to make yeah. sure, James, you're there? Oh, you're there, James? Hello? I don't hear him. James? Okay, I'll call him back in before the break. Okay, thank you. Sure. Search engine optimization channel only on webmasterradio.fm. Are you ready to get LinkedIn? Rocking the world with LinkedIn. One show at a time. Join your fearless leaders, Mike and Lori, as they reveal insider secrets, chat with other LinkedIn gurus, and answer your LinkedIn questions. For those about to get LinkedIn, we salute you. This is your chance to get inspired and use LinkedIn to help you rock the world too. Rock the world with LinkedIn. Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Two, one, boost to ignition. Ascend into new heights of ranking and revenue with a search engine-friendly online shopping cart that's ready for liftoff. Introducing Ascender Cart. Ascender Cart optimizes your shopping cart with easy-to-use SEO tools that will help build keywords, titles, and tags for top search engine rankings. Get all of the advantages of having a shopping cart on your site and monitor your progress with regular reports in just a click. Prepare to launch your shopping cart to the top of the search engines with Ascender Cart. Learn more about what Ascender Cart can do for you at AscenderCart.com. A-S-C-E-N-D-E-R-C-A-R-T.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. All right. Um, good to have you back with, for our last segment. We're going to have James Gannon, who's um, with the technology group of 
McCarthy Tetral, one of Canada's largest and uh, most renowned firms. And um, as you may know, Canada has recently enacted its own version of CAN-SPAM. Um, it is known as the Fighting Internet and Wireless Spam Act. And um, do we have James? Yeah, good morning. Good morning, James. Thank you for, for joining us. James is calling in from Toronto. And um, James, I, I one quick question. Um, you know, sure. um, the United States has had a, had a spam law since 2003 and um, just recently got a health care law where you guys have had health care since 1971, but only now have enacted a, a spam law. Well, you know, where, where's your priorities? What took <laughs> no, you so that's, long? A, that's a great question. Uh, this is something that we've definitely been trying to do at least since around '04. Um, there was a, a government group put together to, to analyze, you know, how we should address the, the growing problem of spam, which I don't know why it took even to 04 to, to get to there. But they came out with a report in, uh, in 05, and since then the government has been trying to do that. But, uh, you know, there's been successive election after election here in Canada, at least until very recently. And, and the way it works here is if there's a proposed law or proposed bill and an election get, gets called, and uh, unlike in the United States, an election can be called any time that the opposition declares uh, – a lack of confidence in the current government. Uh, all the current bills just get dropped, and you have to start again from scratch. So that's basically what's been happening for the last uh, six or seven years up until now. So it, um, the the new law, when does it go into effect? Uh, that's actually currently unknown. Uh, so the law has been passed, and it passed uh, right around the new year. Uh, the actual going into effect date is is unknown, but it's expected to be. Uh, sometime maybe uh, in August, September time frame. There's still some of the few uh, details around the regulations that have yet to be uh, written and, and disclosed, so we're waiting on those still. So that will be coming out from Industry Canada then, correct? That's correct. Uh, the the bill is under the purview of Industry Canada, and uh, it and was so voted on by Parliament. They're going to be issuing regs sometime soon that will actually that will specify when the, the effective date will be? Yeah, they were expected sometime around now, so I, I'm not sure what, what the holdup is, but uh, there's going to be a lot of the, the finer details of, of how the bill's going to work or how the law's going to work are expected and in these regs. Any clue as to uh, when they might make it effective? You, you generally, they, they, do they generally give um, the industry a, a reasonable time to, to, to phase in, or do you think it's something that's being made adopted um, quite, quite quickly? Well, the uh, the bill, the law itself has uh, some coming into force provision, and there's some transitory laws in the bill itself. So even once it gets its effective date, there's, that's actually going to be the, the starting date for these, again, these coming into effect and these ramping up provisions. So there is going to be quite a lot of time for business to, businesses to adapt to this, and they have a lot of adapting to do. Uh, so, so my firm, and I know a lot of other law firms, are, are going around to clients and really presenting... Uh, the effects that this law could have on the way they do business and the changes they have to get made. Now, um, are you are you guys offering any webinars on this that um, listeners might be able to, to sign up for? We have in the past, uh, a few months ago, offered a webinar, and when the bill was first introduced, we offered another one. Uh, we're going to be going uh, around the country, uh, a group called Lexpert that's well-known in Canada. We're going to be presenting with them. Uh, we're going to be going to Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, and Vancouver <laughs> presenting... Uh, the, the effects of, of this law and the kind of changes that companies are going to need to do and uh, people can go and check that out on the web because that's going to be a, a great show and something that I think businesses are going to need to take into mind especially software companies uh, because one thing I know you're comparing this to CAN spam a lot but there's actually a huge spyware portion uh, in this law as well 
And I know in the U.S., spyware is usually dealt with at the, at the uh, state level, but here it's going to be done federally, and we're putting all the spam and spyware stuff all in the same bill. Now, it actually, uh, um, to an extent, there is a, there is a federal um, spyware law as well. Um, it just took several years for it to get enacted. Now, oh, what, right? what is the approach on spyware? Well, the approach on spyware is, and, and this mirrors the approach on spam, is that it takes a very broad sweep. Um, the idea is to try to get to capture everything, every kind of software, and then to to exclude software that might not be spyware. Instead of, as I know the way uh, can spam works, and I know a lot of the state spyware laws I've been looking at, you know, they they try to find a precise definition of what is spam and what is spyware, and then say, you know, that's not allowed. Our, our approach was to say a- any kind of email isn't allowed unless, and that unless will, of course, be stuff like unless you have the consent of the recipient, unless sure. you fall into a list of exceptions. So the, the spyware law is interesting. It takes the same kind of approach. It's illegal to install uh, any kind of software on someone's computer unless you have unless. their express permission and unless you meet some of the uh, disclosure requirements of what your software does. So ultimately, when, when you add in those unlesses, unlesses, you know, unless is cubed, I guess, um, are is, has the parliament defined um, technology or is it defining conduct? That's an interesting question, and, and it's actually a mix of both. Um, because the, the spyware piece, at least, it does focus on, on the act of installation. And, um, you know, it's when someone in, does installs a computer program. And, of course, computer program is, is defined extremely broad, where, broadly as anything with any kind of code in it. And right. that could mean, you know, an XML file, if you think about it. Uh, and you really do have to get uh, every last piece of permission. And if you think about the kind of code that, that are going around mobile networks and, and Internet networks and that kind of stuff, it, it applies to a whole lot of things. And I don't think the, the full extent and the full consequences of, of this uh, are, are going to be fully examined. And what makes this particularly of concern to at least some of the businesses I've been talking to is that there exists a um, what's called a private right of action, which means that right. the, the enforcement is also is going to be done administratively by RCRTC, which is the equivalent of the, of the FCC. But uh, it's also a private individual could sue a, a business up to a, a million bucks a day for for violating some of these provisions. Now, if you just by way of background, when the, when the United States moved forward on spam, it was in 2003. And just before that, the FTC held a big conference with, you know, a whole bunch of you know, it was public conference, but had the two days or um, devoted to the issue of spam. And the year before, the FTC had a conference on competitive issues in in the uh, internet and regards to state regulations. And there were actually well, one panel dealt with the online sales of caskets. So to give you a sense of you know how mundane the, the prior year's panel was, and there was maybe thirty people there. Well, for at the the spam thing, there was so much interest and so much energy on both sides of the issue. One, the, uh, there was standing room only for the, the, the <laughs> um, for the workshops, and we're talking like 300 people who could who could sit. And at one point, a fight broke out. And so, uh, given the, the passions that exist over spam, are, are you in, and also the the experience that we've seen in the U.S., where there are a lot of people who um, you know try to litigate these cases as much as they can. You know, some are known as spambulance chasers. Um, <laughs> you know, are you worried about that being a, kind of a nuisance for Canadian industry? I mean, it's a potential um, to, to happen on, under this new law. And, of course, you know, as with everything, uh, we're also enacting a copyright law here. A, a balance has to be struck. 
And uh, a, lot, a lot of practitioners, myself included, have been saying that, that perhaps the balance here went to, to a bit too broad of a scope uh, and trying to just include everything. And there's going to be some unintended consequences of uh, outlawing some perfectly legitimate activity and stuff that like, there's nobody would say should be a prohibited practice. And the problem is when, when this thing was going through Parliament, you know, no one wants to stand up um, against these kind of provisions. No one wants to stand right. up it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's the know, widows in, and orphans in Parliament thing. or in the House of Representatives or whatever and be pro-spam. Right. So, so no one really wanted to stick their neck out. Both politi- politicians and businesses or, or other interest groups really wanted to stick their neck out in, in opposition of this law. And, and I think that it, there's definitely going to be a, some potential uh, for some interesting, uh, not just, you know, spambulance chasers or whatever you want to call them, but some, uh, some class action groups that might get uh, formed as a result of this law. Well, it's actually what's something we really haven't seen in the United States is the class action. I think, you know, one, because the federal law doesn't allow um, private right of action to begin with. Now, can we talk a little bit about the extent to which the Canadian law diverges from CAN-SPAM, um, you know, particularly as it pertains to you know, the opt-in requirement and the identifying both the, uh, the sender and the advertiser? Sure. Um, I mean, I'm not intimately familiar with the uh, CAN-SPAM, but like I said before, the, the one major overarching difference here is that CAN-SPAM starts out, it says, this is what spam is, and, and it gives you a pretty tight definition. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's some aspect of, of at least an abusive or, or a misleading email that, right. that has to be present to be, to be counted as spam. Again, that's not present here. Um, this law would potentially ban any form of commercial electronic communication. And that means emails, that means IMs, you know, Facebook messages, whatever you want, as long as it's a, an electronic communication with any degree of, of a commercial aspect to it, even, you know, check out this website kind of thing. Unless, uh, unless of course, you have the, uh, the recipient's permission to send that email. And, and the law is also very explicit in saying you can't email someone to get permission. Now, um, is there a volume issue, or can you know if I just send an email to my next door neighbor, hey, come on over for a beer? Um, have I just violated the the, the, the law? Uh, well, it depends. Do you intend to sell him that beer? Can <laughs> give it to him? <laughs> well, I tend to ask him a favor. <laughs> yeah, no, so it's probably it's, it's a commercial cost. Your message having um, uh, some form of of commercial, commercial aspect to it, then uh, it will be considered as a potential uh, unwanted. Uh, or how do they how are they phrase it? Uh, unauthorized commercial message. Right. Um, now, what about there, uh, someone sending a resume? Ah, now there there is an exception for um, begging. <laughs> <laughs> not quite begging, but if you have what they call uh, your e- your email address or your commercial electronic address prominently post posted in a public area with a a job title or some sort of indication that you are soliciting these emails. So if you have your email address up on a website and you have your title saying director of HR, it's understood that you are giving your implied consent to receive those types of information. And there are certain limited provisions to, to have uh, you know, implied consent to receive these emails. Well, um, we only have a few minutes left, and we'll, um, we'll be posting um, James's um, information on the website um, later, so if you have any questions, you can, you can contact him as well. Um, but I have to uh, take a moment to ask you about the Max P. Ready and the uh, and the hit um, in the the Bruins on um, Canadians game. Is that still the buzz up there? 
Oh, of course. Anytime there's anything to do with hockey, you know people are going to be talking about it. And um, you know, I have I have family from Montreal, and and it was and people there are absolutely a uh, fanatic about the uh, the the Canadiens. Um, it's a it's a big deal there. And I, it's not my expertise, but uh, I think the league's going to have to do something about it because Max the, Max the Patch, as he's called, was a was a well liked player there, and, and I think the uh, the league's going to have to take some action. Um, for those who who haven't seen it, it's been played on the internet quite widely. In a game between the Bruins and the Canadians, there was a, a check on um, the Canadian player Max Pirati, and um, his head got wedged between the glass and the board. And it ended up, um, he, sever- he uh, broke his vertebrae, I believe, and came very dangerously close to have, um, actually being paralyzed. And so um, and it has led um, Canada Airlines, or Air Canada, I should say, to um, threaten to w- withdraw sponsorship of the NHL if, um, in light of the fact that there wasn't really any penalty assessed to the player, um, the Bruins player, for the hit. No, absolutely, and you know it's a debate here as to whether it was intentional and whether it was not intentional, and and even you know whether that matters, and then that brings up the, you know interesting legal questions, of course. Uh, but I, I think there's not a person here who, whose heart doesn't go out to Max and and to the family and just wish him the absolute best. I mean, what's his long-term prognosis? Is he? I um I haven't been following his his health condition that closely, but I would be surprised if uh, if he would play in the NHL again. Well, that's a shame. Now, um. Yeah, it just the, the Bruins and obviously and the Canadians have a long history, and uh, um, yeah, there definitely has been some some big fights between them. And I and also the um, um, I understand the Quebec um, criminal um, judicial authorities are investigating possible criminal charges uh, in that incident. But um, James, I want to thank you for um, taking the time to come, and um, I hope you consider um, coming back on when the when the regs come out. But so, um, in a nutshell, basically, um, Canada has a spam law. You should be aware that it's coming. <laughs> it's kind of like a a knuckleball pitch. You don't really see it, but you should know that you have to swing some point soon. Yeah. And um, if I could just add maybe one last thing, it's that the law would apply to messages either sent or accessed in Canada. So it's even something that uh, American businesses hoping to do business in Canada need to take in mind. Well, um, James, thank you very much. Next week, we're going to have best-selling author William Powers. Um, if you ever thought about whether you can go a weekend without the Internet, well, um, Bill has a book on that, and he's going to talk about that and the role of technology next week on Cyber Law and Business Report. Thanks again, James. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 